Good afternoon, everyone, and a warm welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Delbert Rohak, and I'm a policy analyst with Cato Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, um, and I'll be moderating this this forum today, uh, which is focused on, on Tim Hafer's new book, The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. As many of you probably know, um, PJ O'Rourke is a fellow here at Cato. Actually, he was here just last night talking about his new book. And as it happens, um, I, was, I, was, I was amused to see that, that he was featured in Tim's book as well. In fact, the first chapter starts with a quote, uh, a rather funny quote by, by PJ O'Rourke, which I will I will read to you uh, in its entirety. Microeconomics concerns things that economists are specifically wrong about, while macroeconomics concerns things economists are wrong about generally. Um, okay, j jokes aside, I don't think that does justice to, to the economic profession. Um, I think in, in, in micro, uh, at least, there is a well-established set of tools um, and models and methods on which most academics agree. And there is a, uh, by the standards of social sciences, a rigorous way of, of settling uh, disagreements. There is certainly some scope for, 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 for rigorous, um, conclusive empirical testing. Um, but arguably, the situation is different um, among macroeconomists. Um, so, uh, Peter Betke, who is a, an economist at GMU, likes to say that micro is, is one true theory with many applications, while macro is no true theory with a variety of opinions. And, and I think, that, I think that's, 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 that's a fair assessment. Um, just think about basic uh, socially relevant policy questions like, uh, you know, did the Obama stimulus, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, uh, increase employment or output or not? If not, was it because it was too big or too small? Um, we can't really run anything even remotely resembling a controlled experiment on, on such, a, such a policy question. And, and, and so there will always be a lot of uncertainty surrounding the answer, uh, notwithstanding the fairly certain uh, claims made by, 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 by people who sort of know, uh, think they know for sure. Tim's book, which he's going to discuss with us uh, today does not shy away from um, these ambiguities surrounding uh, macro, uh, does not try to sort of hide them or, or, or obscure them. It is one of those rare introductions to the subject that shuns jargon and tries to explain rather complicated issues ranging from GDP measurement, um, problems of nominal adjustment, uh, um, inequality and so on in a way that's accessible, engaging, funny, uh, however, it does not dumb things down as, 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 as many uh, commentators uh, like to do. Let me just say a few brief words about our featured speakers, uh, Tim and, and, and Alex, and, and then we can, we can hand it over to them. Um, Tim is an economist, senior columnist with, uh, with the Financial Times and a presenter with the BBC. Um, his long-running column, The Undercover Economist, discusses uh, the, the hidden economics of everyday life, so to speak, whereas his new column, Since You Asked, offers a skeptical look at the news of the week. He wrote four highly successful books. Um, the Undercover Economist um, was sold on over a million copies, was translated into almost 30 languages. Um, and he wrote The Logic of Life, 
the Undercover Economist, which is a collection of, of, of I think, his newspaper uh, columns, um, Adapt, and most recently, The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. As a broadcaster, he's been with BBC Radio 4, uh, and most famously with his more or less show, and, and his new series started last year. It's called uh, Pop-Up Ideas. Libertarians in the room might recognize him as the recipient of the 2006 Bastia Prize for Economic Journalism. Um, he was also runner-up in 2010. His uh, Radio 4 series was awarded uh, at several occasions uh, the Excellence in Journalism Prize from the Royal Statistical Society. Besides DFT, Tim has been uh, featured and published in The Guardian, Sunday Times, Washington Post, New York Times, and magazines ranging from, from Forbes to Wired to Esquire. And he has appeared on Colbert Report, uh, Planet Money, Newsnight, and a number of other radio and television uh, programs. He lives in Oxford. He received his PPE, um, a degree in PPE uh, uh, from, from Brazenose, I believe. Uh, and he also did an MPhil at economics at Oxford. Um, and he is a visiting fellow at Nuffield College. Alex um, is, Alex Tabrock is a professor of economics at George Mason University. And he works on a range of uh, topics uh, in public economics and, and law and economics. He works on uh, patents, he works on uh, the effectiveness of bounty hunters as compared to, to, to the police. He works on uh, problems related to the judicial system, he works on how, studies how uh, judicial elections can bias judges. He looks at how local poverty rates affect uh, trial decisions. He, he uh, looks into um, the problem of, of organ transplants and how market mechanisms can increase supply of organs available for transplants. Uh, and, and also looks at regulatory issues, more specifically at, uh, at, at drug regulation. He is um, a co-author of the hugely successful economics blog, Marginal Revolution, and a co-founder of the online educational platform, uh, Marginal Revolution University. Um, with Tyler Cowen, he wrote a series of textbooks uh, called Modern Principles of Economics. One of them is a macro textbook. And uh, last year or year and a half ago, he wrote a little ebook on innovation and and, and long-term uh, growth-related issues called uh, Launching the Innovation Renaissance. He's been published in the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, a number of other uh, prestigious publications. He received his PhD in economics from George Mason University, where he's also a fellow at the Mercatus Center. Um, so, so the idea for, 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 for this afternoon is, is to have each of our speakers uh, speak for up to uh, 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll open it up for Q&A, and we'll try to, 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 to conclude this session promptly at 1.30 p.m. Now, without any further ado, I'd like to turn things over to Tim Harford. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Danibor. Um The thing that really annoys me about uh, macroeconomics and the macroeconomic debate is that it's either incomprehensibly mathematical or it is... Uh, dis really dishearteningly political. Uh, people don't really seem to be interested in exploring what's really going on and discussing it and trying to understand it and, and trying to understand what makes it tick. They're just 
interested in sound bites and in tribalism. So, for instance, just this week, the statistic that was gripping the world newspapers was put about by Oxfam that the, the world's richest 85 people, between them, control more wealth than the poorest three and a half billion people, the poorest half of the world's population. And the, the Guardian newspaper pointed out that the, the, the richest 85 people could, could fit comfortably on a double-decker bus. I mean, of course, these guys are never going to be seen dead <laughs> on a double-decker bus, but still. Uh, and I thought about this, and I thought, well, there are all kinds of interesting things that we could say about um, wealth inequality and whether it's a problem and what we might want to do about it, but this isn't helping. And I can tell you why it's not helping. Because not only are the richest 85 people in the world uh, controlling more wealth than the, the poorest half of the world's population, but I know a person who all by himself controls more wealth than the poorest billion in the world. He's my two-year-old son, and he has no debts, and therefore his wealth is approximately zero. And since the poorest billion people in the world have negative wealth, my son already controls not only more than any of them, but more than all of them put together. Now, if you think this is a completely absurd and ridiculous comparison, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. And neither really did the Oxfam report, and neither did a week's worth of newspaper headlines about it. Uh, it this is just typical of the standard of debate about macroeconomics and economic issues in general that we're exposed to. And I wanted to do something a little different with the undercover economist strikes back. I wanted to talk about a subject that uh, it, I don't need to make the case that macroeconomics is important. We've all seen that the hard way over the past six or seven years. But a subject that's not only important, but genuinely interesting, weird, fascinating, flawed, without a doubt flawed, but really has something to offer. If only we can spare the time and the patience to try to figure out how it all works. Uh, and to leave aside not only the absurd uh, claims, not only the jargon, but also the politics. Because frankly, I'm, I'm bored of it. And I suspect some of you may be bored of it too. And today I thought just, just to give you a flavor of the book and to give Alex something to, to criticize or to compliment as he wishes, um, I, I'd tell you a little story about one of the key characters in the book. And the story begins uh, just before Christmas in 1949 in London, the London School of Economics. It's a seminar room. And all the great and the good of British economics are in the room. Lionel Robbins, who ran the LSE's economics department for many years, had been trying to set up a rival to John Maynard Keynes's Cambridge. Keynes was dead. Robbins had been recruited. Uh, he brought in people uh, such as James Meads, the great trade theorist who did so much to steer the British economy through the Second World War, Arthur Lewis, the great development economist, um, Friedrich, Friedrich Hayek, you may have heard of him, uh, and really great economists that have been brought in to try to make the LSE the cutting edge of economic thought. But on this particular day, the person giving the seminar wasn't some hotshot professor who'd been uh, transported over from Harvard or for, from Vienna. Um, it was a mature student from New Zealand incredibly nervous. Uh, he was giving his seminar with a, with a cigarette between his fingers, just occasionally smoking away, just trying to calm his nerves, because he knew um, that everything depended on this seminar. His academic future depended on this seminar. 
And he also knew that his academic record was extremely poor. He was failing all of his exams. And yet somehow, Lionel Robbins had been persuaded that, that this was the man who needed to be invited to give this seminar. And all of the LSE professors showed up to see this young man speak uh, because they'd heard rumors that he was going to do something odd, notable, um, worth discussing, something maybe extraordinary, maybe ridiculous. And they wanted to see it, maybe have a bit of a laugh. The man's name was Alban William Phillips, Bill Phillips. And he'd been born about 35 years earlier in Terahunga, which is a rural part of a rural country, New Zealand. His dad was a dairy farmer. And the farm on which Bill grew up was the only one in the area to have uh, electric light, to have flushed lavatories. Um, this wasn't because Bill's father was rich. It's because Bill's father was an engineer. He was a tinkerer. And he liked to solve problems. He liked to take things apart, and he liked to put things together. And he gave that same uh, enthusiasm for tinkering to Bill. So he taught Bill to make his own toys. He taught Bill to make his own little radio sets. And um, Bill started developing his own inventions. So the, the first one, of course, is as, as useful as a lot of modern macroeconomics. He, he built a, a bicycle stand, uh, a sort of book stand to go on the front of his bike. Now, Bill had to cycle nine miles to a railway station, get a train to the nearest town, go to school, get the train back to the station, pick up his bike and cycle nine miles home to the farm. So it's a bit of a faff. And so this book stand was going to allow him to put his favorite novels and textbooks and so on on his bike while he cycled. <laughs> to be honest, it wasn't a great success. Um, <laughs> but then pretty soon he did actually graduate to, to more successful projects. And at one stage, he did something that I think um, symbolizes something important about Bill Phillips. He heard that a neighbor had this broken down truck. And everybody in the neighborhood had given up on this thing. It was never going to run again. So Bill got hold of it. And he popped open the hood, and he had a look. And he said to himself, well, I've got to be able to figure out what's wrong here. I've got to be able to figure out how this works. And that's what he did. He set himself the task of understanding how the engine worked. And when he'd finished understanding how the engine worked, he fixed the truck. He got it going. He was 14 years old. And Bill used to drive his friends to, all the way to school, and they'd park around the corner so the teachers didn't see them. And uh, then they'd drive all the way home. That was Bill Phillips. He left school at 15. He didn't go to university. And the main reason he didn't go to university was because of his first brush with why economics and the economy is important. The Great Depression had started. And it started with this seizing up of flows of finance on Wall Street. And already the scrabbling fingers of this economic crisis were reaching all the way around the world, pulling down dairy prices, even in New Zealand. Suddenly, Bill's mum and dad didn't have enough money to send him to university. He needed to go out and get a job instead. And he, his first job was working on a hydroelectric dam. He taught himself engineering via mail order while working on this hydroelectric dam. But pretty soon, he decided he was going to leave New Zealand. And there's this uh, line in the Wall Street Journal review of Freakonomics that says, Steve Levitt is the Indiana Jones of economics, which is a nice line. And I, I like Steve Levitt, and I like Freakonomics. But I don't think it's true. I don't think Steve Levitt is the Indiana Jones of economics. Bill Phillips is the Indiana Jones of economics. Because in between showing up at the London School of Economics 
uh, and leaving New Zealand, he worked as a self-taught busker, he set up a, an open-air cinema, he worked as a, a gold miner, a crocodile hunter, arrested by the Japanese accused of spying, you know, the usual things you do on a year out. And eventually, after riding the Trans-Siberian Railway, he finally, after all these adventures, ended up at the London School of Economics and signed up not only for a, an engineering degree at the LSE, but also for the British Royal Air Force. Almost immediately, war broke out, and he was sent all the way back across the other side of the world to participate in the defense of Singapore. And Bill was still an engineer. He was still a tinkerer. He was still trying to solve problems. So the first problem he wrestled with was how to get the machine guns on these terrible old planes the British Army had in Singapore, how to get the machine guns lined up with the propellers so you could fire through the propellers without hitting your own plane, which is not a good idea. And he'd heard that in, in Europe, you know, the cutting edge planes used by the Germans and the British actually worked like this, but the Singaporean planes they were using, they were well out of date and they didn't do this. And Bill managed to, with very limited tools and frankly, frighteningly limited aviation experience, managed to get this working, managed to get the planes firing the way modern planes did. Uh, the British surrendered Singapore pretty quickly and Bill was on the last uh, refugee ship leaving Singapore with civilians. And he was uh, in charge of the weaponry on board the ship. And pretty soon the Japanese Air Force found them and they started dive bombing the ship. It was designed to hold cargo and five passengers. There were actually 2,000 women and children on the ship. And Bill had a machine gun. He didn't have a machine gun stand. So he, he disappeared below deck and somehow improvised from, I, I don't know, toothpaste and snot or something, put together a machine gun stand, came back up, stood on the deck, single-handedly, this heavy machine gun and this improvised stand fighting off the Japanese Air Force. And he, he later won a medal for bravery for that. But he, in the end, he ended up in a, a prison camp and he, the tinkering continued. So he made these tiny radios. He made a radio so small you could fit it in the heel of a clog. Remember, this is the 1940s. This is really a long time before iPods. And he's working with whatever he can find in a prisoner of war camp. And somehow he manages to do this. If he'd been caught, he would probably have been executed. But he thought it was really important that the prisoners had news of what was going on in the outside world. He also uh, built a little immersion heater. He, actually, he built dozens of them to make cups of tea. It's very important. Uh, British Empire at stake. And he made so many of them that every evening the, the Japanese would notice that the, the lights in the prison camp were dimming. <laughs> this was Bill Phillips drawing enough electricity to make 2,000 cups of morale-boosting tea. He really was a remarkable, remarkable man. The darkest episode of Bill's war was when he and his fellow prisoners were moved to a different camp. And they didn't know where it was, they didn't know what was going on, but they had a pretty good idea. Because the first thing they were ordered to do was to dig these large mass graves in the middle of the camp. And they could see the machine guns on the walls pointing inwards. But Bill had another problem. His clog radio had broken. So Bill and the novelist Lawrence van der Post, who was in the camp with him, and a third man, an officer called Donaldson, came up with a foolproof scheme to fix the radio. And when I tell you about it, I think you'll agree it's risk-free. 
They were going to break into the Japanese camp commander's office in the middle of the night, take apart his radio, take the part out of his radio, and then, this is the genius bit, because that would look suspicious, then they would take the faulty part from Bill's radio, install that in the Japanese camp commander's radio, reassemble the Japanese camp commander's radio, put it all back together. And the genius of this is that when the Japanese came in and switched their radio on, they realized it was faulty, they'd take it apart, they'd see the faulty component, and they'd order a replacement. So this would be the gift that kept on giving. They could do this again and again and again. Really, really thinking very long term for three men who just dug their own grave. Bill fixed his radio, and he plugged it in, and the first thing that he heard was the news that the Americans had dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, and the war was about to end. And when he got back to the London School of Economics, he decided he didn't want to study engineering anymore. His priorities had changed. I mean, he had, after all, taken the mother of all years out. He switched to sociology. He wanted to understand why people could do these terrible things to each other. And I apologize if there are any sociologists in the audience, but um, turns out he found sociology a bit disappointing. It wasn't so hot on the causes and consequences of World War II. But he did take a few modules in economics. Actually, Bill wasn't hugely impressed with economics either. Um, he, he didn't think it answered important problems. But he did notice one thing that did fascinate him. James Mead, his lecturer, was drawing these differential equations on the board. I mean, economists at the time loved differential equations. Economists still love differential equations. They're great. We can't get enough of them. And he noticed these differential equations, and he, he recognized them. They were very similar to the equations he had been learning from his distance degree in engineering, his mail-order engineering course, and that he'd been using in the hydroelectric power station. They were describing flows of water through pipes and sluice gates and, and over barriers and through turbines. It's the same, it's basically the same stuff. And he went to James Mead, and you have to understand, he's failing every exam at this point because he just doesn't really care. He went to James Mead and he said, I've got an idea. I want to rework your principles of economics lectures as a study in plumbing. And Mead said, by the way, if any of you are failing your exams, you may want to try this with your professors, just, yeah. just a thought. Because Mead said, OK, off you go. And Bill took the summer off, disappeared to a, a lock-up garage in Croydon, belonged to his landlady. And with a colleague, Walter Newlin, he built a machine. And it was this machine that Bill was demonstrating. A few weeks before Christmas, 1949, all the greats of the economics profession are there. And Bill unveils what looks a little bit like an exercise machine for goldfish. You've got these perspex tanks, and they're connected together by pipes and pumps and sluices and dams. And they're filled with water. The water's stained pink, so you can see it more clearly. And they've got floats in them. The, the floats are attached to pegs, and the pegs run through these uh, carefully carved slots so that as the level of water in a tank rises, the, the float may, may move from one side or the other side. You can actually carve out a curve, in, literally carve a curve, in the side of the perspex. And um, the, the tanks are labeled with things such as uh, consumption or um, government expenditure, taxation. Exports, imports, and at the bottom there's a huge tank that reads 
national income. And Bill reaches around the back of the machine and he switches on this fuel pump that he's scavenged from a wartime bomber. In fact, he scavenged the entire machine from a wartime bomber. And the, the food pump is wearing, fuel, fuel pump is wearing away like a food processor. And as the water gets pumped up and starts to flow down through this machine, Bill explains to these astonished economists that what he's built is the first ever computer model of a national economy. And after about five minutes, the conversation quickly turns to how Bill Phillips can be given a professorship at the London School of Economics. Now, I love the story about Bill, and I love the story about his machine. Uh, although the story has a, a sad end, I think, that we can come to. Uh, the reason I, I like the Phillips machine is not because it's a good model of an economy. I think we can all agree that an economy is a lot more complicated than a bunch of interconnected fish tanks. But I love the, the way he tried to show something very important about the way a macroeconomy works, that everything is connected to everything else. You've got to see the system as a whole. We've already mentioned um, Frederick Bastiat, his famous essay, What is Not Seen. We were constantly being led astray in economics by uh, reactive forces that are going on behind the back of our heads as we, as we look at some particular phenomena. And Bill said, no, I want, to, I want to put it all in front of you. I want you to see everything that matters. You can see all these things flowing together. And that's a very important fact about any successful macroeconomic model. It's got to have that property of showing the system as a whole working. And it became a wonderful teaching aid. Um, Bill used to use it to teach macroeconomics. James Mead used to plug two machines together. He'd plug the export pipe to the import pipe and the import pipe into the export pipe. And he'd, he'd get two students out to the front of the lecture theater and he'd say, right, you're the chairman of the Federal Reserve, you're the governor of the Bank of England, manipulate interest rates and let's see what happens. Water all over the floor is fantastic. One of the, um, one of the students he pulled out and, and asked to pretend to be chairman of the Federal Reserve was a very tall young American Rhodes Scholar by the name of uh, Paul Volcker. So it was a pretty good teaching aid. Now, what happened next is to me, a shame. Because if you ask anyone who's done an undergraduate degree in economics about Bill Phillips, they will know nothing about the Japanese Air Force. They will know nothing about the medal, nothing about the prison camp. They may know about the Phillips machine, but they're regarded as this sort of quaint, antiquated, who, who on earth would make a, a computer made of water these days? These days, we have, we have computer models that are much more complicated. And, and even better, you, have, you can't see how they work. So that's, that's obviously an advantage. Um, <laughs> much less transparent. Um, so it seems very quaint. It doesn't seem like an important thing. But th there, is, there is one thing that people do know about Bill Phillips. Bill Phillips is the discoverer of the Phillips curve. And Bill Phillips observed the Phillips curve, which is a correlation between uh, roughly speaking, between inflation and unemployment. It's slightly different than that, but that's the basic idea. When inflation is high, unemployment's low. When inflation is low, unemployment is high. And he put together some, some diagrams. He, he, he uh, draft paper, and he showed it to some colleagues. And they got very, very excited about it. They said, you've got to publish this. This is very important. And he said, well, I don't think so. It's, it's a rush job. It's just a correlation. But his colleagues insisted. 
And the Phillips Curve became the most cited journal article in the history of macroeconomics. Paul Samuelson, the great American economist, picked up the Phillips Curve and he championed this idea that governments could choose a point on this curve. You could choose high inflation, low unemployment, or you could choose low inflation, high unemployment. It's up to you. It's a political choice. But you certainly have the power to choose from these menu of options. And a lot of economists championed that idea. And then something happened in the late 1960s. Milton Friedman and Edmund Phelps, and then shortly afterwards, Robert Lucas, all published very powerful critiques of the Phillips curve. And they said, it, it, sure, it's an impressive correlation, but it's just a correlation. You really have no idea of the underlying, underlying behavior that's driving it. And if you don't understand the underlying behavior that's driving it, you don't really understand it, and you can't rely on it. Uh, there's a famous example uh, from Tom Sargent, who said it, it's, it's like, um, trying to prevent people from kicking the ball in American football. Um, I'm not going to explain American football to you guys. I'm hoping that you know it better than I do. But you know that if you get four downs, you get four attempts. And in the fourth attempt, if you haven't got the ball far enough forward, you will concede possession. And so the incentive is to just kick the ball, get rid of the ball, get it down the field. Now, let's say the, the regulatory authorities on, of the game wish to prevent punting. They don't want people to kick the ball away. Well, the, the Bill Phillips, the Phillips curve style analysis says, let's look at the data. The data says they don't punt on the first down, they don't punt on the second down, they don't punt on the third down, they always punt on the fourth down, let's abolish the fourth down. That should fix it. And you see, you make completely the wrong policy judgment if you don't understand the incentives. It doesn't matter how good the data look, how convincing the correlation is. If you don't understand what's going on under the surface, you're going to get things wrong. And that's what Phelps and Friedman and Lucas said was true about the Phillips curve. And then something even more important happened, the oil crisis of the 1970s. And Phillips curve style, Keynesian macro, completely failed. And the Phillips curve itself fell apart dissolved into the air. And at that point, I think something quite damaging happened to macroeconomics. Macroeconomics started treating the data like an unfaithful spouse. We trusted this person all these years. They seemed to be constant. And then when we really needed them, they betrayed us. And that's how economics started to feel about, you know, Facts, you can't trust them. They, they seem useful, but you can't trust them. And then for a long while, macroeconomics turned its back on facts and focused instead on internal consistency. Let's just understand the behavioral parameters. Let's understand what's going on under the surface. And then once we've sorted that little problem out, it can't take too long. Then we'll go back and we'll look at the facts again. And unfortunately, we're still working on the internal consistency. And we're having trouble resolving it with facts about the world. And I think economics is, is starting to turn outward again and, and there are very important and useful pieces of work being done. But I think that was a very damaging episode for macro. And into, unless you understand how it happened and why it happened, the flaws of macro just seem incomprehensible. It just seems, why would you ignore the data? Well, there is a reason. I don't, I don't advocate ignoring the data. I think it was a mistake. But there was a reason. It wasn't crazy. And you might wonder to yourself, 
What about Bill Phillips during all of this? Well, Bill never really defended himself against Friedman and Phelps and Lucas, and there were two reasons for that. One was he never really believed Samuelson's interpretation of the Phillips curve anyway. He always said it's just an interesting correlation. He always said it's a rush job. There's even some evidence that his colleagues published the Phillips curve paper without his permission while he was on sabbatical because they were trying to get this professorship for him. He certainly never took it seriously. There was another reason, which is by the time the oil shocks hit and the Phillips curve really had just disappeared, Bill Phillips was dead. He had a stroke and he died young. And I think that's sad, not only because it's sad whenever anybody dies before their time, but because this was really a, a great man. He was a very practical thinker. He was pragmatic. And yet he's irrevocably linked with an idea that was proved to be wrong that he never really believed in. And what I really feel we need to keep of the Bill Phillips spirit was this strange balance that he had. On the one hand, being humble, saying, we don't really understand what's going on. It, it's just a correlation. Don't get excited. Don't overrate your ability to understand the economy. But at the same time, Bill wasn't willing to give up. He wasn't willing to say, it's just too hard. I don't understand it. Bill felt about the economy the way that he felt about that truck when he was 14 years old. Yeah, everybody else has concluded that it's broken down. Everybody else has concluded there's nothing that anybody can do to fix it. There's nothing that anybody can do to understand it. But I'm going to understand it, and I'm going to fix it. And he did. Thank you very much. Right. Great. Uh, okay, so it's a, it's a very great pleasure for me to be uh, here today at Cato to be talking about uh, Tim and Tim's book. I'm a longtime uh, fan of uh, Tim's work and uh, also of this book uh, in uh, particular. In fact, that's where I want to begin. I want to just uh, uh, briefly mention some of the things I really like, and then I'm going to get into a little bit of a uh, critique. So Tim, as you can just see, is a, a genius at uh, storytelling. And uh, he's just brilliant at prevent, uh, presenting complex ideas in a, a simple way, which really brings them to life. Uh, here is how Tim explains why rational expectations is important and why we need to model, at least some of the time, uh, people as having rational expectations. It's because not everyone is Charlie Brown. Okay? Uh, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool everyone. Some people, in fact, do learn, of course. Some people maybe are Charlie Brown, and that's why we need some behavioral economics uh, as well. Uh, Tim is also uh, can be hard-hitting uh, when necessary. Uh, a little bit later, I'm going to say he's a little soft for my taste on some questions, uh, as the British might say, a little wet. Uh, but he can be hard-hitting when necessary, and I think this is important uh, because not all of our problems are sort of macro problems. There are uh, micro problems, which we really understand very well, and which uh, need also to be addressed. So Tim points out, for example, that in Spain, the standard employment contract says that for every year you work, you get 45 days severance pay if you're fired. So if you work for eight years for a firm, you have a year's severance pay. 
This means that firms never want to fire people. It's just too expensive. But because hiring someone has such uh, potentially large consequences, they also never want to hire people, particularly young people who you don't know. So as a result, youth unemployment rates, uh, Tim points out, have been hovering around 50% during the Euro crisis, and there's no sign of improvement. So again, this is a deep micro problem, a regulatory problem. It's one which goes beyond the Euro crisis, and it's important to point these out. Uh, Tim is also appropriately skeptical. Um, he has a number of chapters uh, in his book uh, defending uh, macroeconomics. Uh, he has a very nice chapter defending uh, GDP, the GDP statistic. Uh, he's appropriately skeptical about replacing it with sort of happiness or you know, the Bhutan kind of method of you know, happiness, economics, and, and so forth. Um, he is also appropriately skeptical of this idea which uh, physicists uh, like to express that we can't have economic growth. Economic growth cannot go on forever, cannot be an exponential process because there's a limited amount of energy. And we can't use exponentially uh, more energy. And uh, Tim has a nice refutation of this. You know, he points out that, yeah, if I'm poor, uh, then, and it's cold, then I might have to put on a hat and uh, I might wear a sweater uh, indoors. And if I get a little bit uh, uh, richer, then I'm going to turn off the heat and take off my hat. But this doesn't mean that if I win the lottery, I'll celebrate by boiling myself alive. Okay. So we can get a lot richer and not use that much more energy. Great stuff. Okay, to some critiques. Uh, so I'm the director of the Public Choice Center at uh, George Mason University. So it's not too surprising, I suppose, that I say there's not enough public choice. Uh, and I want to give a little bit of a context to this. So strikes. Uh, Strikes Back is written as a, as a Q&A, questions and, and answers. And I think there's sort of two problems uh, uh, with that. Uh, not problems for the reader. This is, a, a, this is an excellent way of presenting the material, and it, it, it flows beautifully and, and so forth. But I think there's sort of two sort of uh, uh, metaphysical uh, uh, problems. Uh, one is, do we really know the answers? Okay. Do we really have the answers? You know, the economy is clearly a very complex system. And there are many open questions. There are many frontiers of economics which we are still pushing against. There's a lot we don't understand. And the Q&A framework perhaps doesn't always get at that. The second issue is, if we know the answers, well, why aren't we implementing them? I mean, Tim writes so beautifully and well, and you, you think it, this is so easy to understand. Well, why? Why aren't we implementing the AIDS? Why aren't we implementing the answers? And there's two sort of answers to that question. One is the, the kind of the Paul Krugman answer, which is that it's stupidity. People are stupid. And actually, I'm actually a little bit simpatico with this. Um, you know, contrary to popular belief, uh, my political views and, and Paul Krugman's actually don't differ very much. Just a tiny, tiny little bit, actually. Because, you know, Paul Krugman says that Republicans, they're, they're evil, they're venal, they're stupid, they're, you know, they're incompetent. And if you would just change the word from Republicans to politicians, then I would agree. <laughs> just a small, small, tiny change there. Um, it's always been peculiar to me, by the way, that even if you think 
that the you know, Democrats are angels and the Republicans are knaves. You would think that as long as you understand that you know, about half of the time the knaves are going to be in power, that should make you a libertarian maybe half the time or you know, 50%. But apparently Paul doesn't see, it, uh, doesn't see that. This, the second answer to why, if we know the answers, assuming we do know them, why aren't they being implemented, is the public choice answer. That is incentives and the institutions. That there is a reason why politics doesn't respond in the way in which an engineer like Bill Phillips would respond. There are reasons why fixing the truck is not the same as fixing the economy. Because when you're fixing the truck, there aren't people trying to stop you from fixing it. There aren't people who benefit when the truck doesn't work. But when you're dealing with an economy, there are people who can benefit when the economy doesn't work. And we need to understand that. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but what I do want to point out is that just a few areas in which understanding the limits of politics can change what you think of as optimal policy. So Tim talks a little bit about the gold standard uh, in, in his book. And I don't want to, uh, uh, Tim is sort of anti-gold standard, but it's only a sentence or two, so you don't have to think this is like a big part of the book. Um, and he gives a kind of a standard sort of reason why. He says, standard reason, but, but presented in a, the Tim Harford way. He says, you can't print gold. And sometimes that's a problem. Your central bank can create money from thin air. It's like a superpower. Use it. Okay, now let's just go with this for a minute. Let us suppose that we accept the economics here. Okay. Well, but there's a problem. There's still a problem with this. What about the euro? The euro, the European Union and the European monetary system, is having exactly the same problems we saw under the gold standard. They aren't using their superpower. Again, going with the argument that they should. They're not using their superpower. They're not expanding the money supply nearly as much as one would think that they should going on the standard economics. Well, if that's true, then of course the gold standard starts to look even better. And indeed, if you look at the history of the gold standard, it actually looks pretty good. It's perhaps not, uh, it's, it performs better on inflation standards, performs about as well, as, uh, uh, about as well on uh, uh, recessions and, and depression uh, uh, standards. So there's a bit of a nirvana fallacy here that uh, we may not get the optimum, even if we understood it. We may not get it with, because of political reasons, and that's important when we're trying to choose. Now, do I think that we should go back on, on the gold standard? Do I think this is a good argument for switching to the gold standard? Uh, no, I do think, uh, I do agree with Tim that it's uh, archaic. Uh, clearly, Bitcoin is the way to go. All right, here's another one, kind of a similar story, the balanced budget. Um, again, Tim is, uh, uh, says that it would be a disaster, and it gives the standard reason. You can't do counter-cyclical uh, stimulus. Uh, okay, let's, let's go with that. Let's assume that uh, we accept that argument. Well, austerity. We're not doing counter-cyclical stimulus, at least not anywhere near to the extent 
that you would expect on standard economics, particularly in Europe, less so in the United States, but particularly in Europe. That's not what they're doing. So if they're not, if the political system is not going to follow what, let's assume, standard economics uh, recommends, then again, something like a balanced budget amendment actually looks uh, quite a bit better. Uh, moreover, this doesn't consider uh, the, counter, the fact that you can't do countercyclical stimulus. This doesn't consider what I have called the unbalanced budget amendment, which is to save in good times so that you can spend in bad. Sweden, in fact, has a rule which says that you have to run a 1% budget surplus over the business cycle. That works out in practice to a balanced budget amendment, forcing you to save in good times so you can spend in bad. So not all of the arguments against a, counter, against a balanced budget amendment uh, apply to reasonable versions of uh, that kind of constitutional rule. OK. More generally, uh, from my perspective, I thought, yeah, a little bit conventional, a little bit middle-of-the-road Keynesian in some respects. Um, so Tim basically argues that most uh, business cycles, sort of a failure of aggregate demand plus wage and price stickiness. Not all, as we'll see, not all, but sort of, sort of most. Um, I think failure of aggregate demand, yeah, I can understand that. I can see, I can see that. But I think the difficulty, uh, and this is difficulty for you know, modern economics, how long can prices and wages really be sticky? Keep in mind that when we hear, you know, the US economy created 100,000 jobs this month, what that actually means is more like the US economy created a million jobs this month, 900,000 jobs were destroyed. So the 100,000 is a net. So this means that even when employment and unemployment statistics are fairly flat. There's actually an incredible amount of churn going on in the economy, an incredible turnover in new jobs being created and old jobs being destroyed. So that means there's plenty of opportunity to change wages. Even if you think that for behavioral reasons you don't want to cut someone's wages because they get upset, they get mad you know, when you cut their wages. Because there's so much churn in jobs, you can offer new employees lower wages. Okay, so there's plenty of opportunities to do that. Same thing is true with prices. Look, gasoline stations change their prices every day. And we don't somehow look at gasoline stations and say, oh, the reason gasoline is so expensive is because they have to keep changing their prices. The menu costs, the costs of price changing, it's so large. And it's what a shame that gasoline firms have to do this. No, it's not a big deal to them at all. Why can't other firms change their prices? Okay, why are these prices so sticky? It doesn't, it doesn't feel, uh, it, it, the story doesn't ring so true to me. So for me, price stickiness is sort of like a, a giant and he's walking along and he gets some gum on the shoe and it sort of, a, you know, he falters. It takes a you know, step or two, he falters a little bit because of the stickiness, because of this gum on his shoe. But it's not something which is uh, going to hold back an economy. If you believe that, it's sort of, if you want to uh, follow that story, you have to think that uh, price and wage stickiness, it's like being stuck in you know, Spider-Man's web. Okay? You're helpless, and you can't get out of the web. And that doesn't seem right to me. 
I'd also argue that uh, the real shock kind of story, the real side of the economy, the supply side of the economy, uh, is not given enough attention. This is true in the blogosphere. It's true in popular economics uh, in, in general. Um, now, Tim does talk about this. He analogizes uh, real business cycle theory um, as a failure of the Red Cross to deliver supplies to a uh, POW camp. Of course, this fits great with the story because Bill Phillips is at the POW camp. But I don't actually think, I think this is one place where Tim's analogy doesn't really quite work uh, so well because it's almost literally supply is sort of manna from heaven. That's not right. It also suggests that the POW camp setting suggests that supply shocks are far from the normal situation. And that's not right either. So here is to give an alternative kind of uh, analogy or story. Uh, here's the one which uh, Tyler Cowan and I tell in our uh, Principles of Economics book, uh, Modern Principles of Economics, about uh, real shocks. So these are weather shocks in uh, India. On uh, panel A, which is on the left here, what you see in uh, green is the growth rate of agricultural output, green for growth. And what you see in blue is deviations of rainfall uh, from the average. And what you can see in panel A is that when the rainfall is above average uh, in India, you get a lot of growth in agricultural output. And when it's below average, you get below average growth. What panel B shows, because India is a still predominantly an agricultural economy, is that these rainfall shocks, you can also see them in the real GDP statistics. Correlation is not quite as close, but you can definitely see when rainfall shocks are above average, real GDP is above average. That's a real business cycle kind of story. And when you think about most of the economies and most of the world's history of being agricultural economies, most of the world's recessions and depressions have been real shocks, RBC style shocks. Now the criticism here is that it's sort of hard to think of big aggregate shocks to technology. So the one I just gave, you know, the weather, this is a good example, but after the weather, well, you know, what are, what, are, what are the other ones? And does the weather really apply to a developed economy? And of course, weather shocks, even in the United States, still matter. Uh, you know, just uh, as we've seen recently, just uh, a Tuesday, the, uh, uh, the government was shut down because of a weather shock. So we got a positive boost to GDP. <laughs> um, but after that, it's sort of hard to come up with some of these oil shocks, maybe. Um, this is why in the RBC literature, the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium literature, the search has been for amplification and transmission mechanisms. How is it that small shocks are amplified throughout an economy to become bigger? How are they transmitted from one part of the economy to the global economy, to the aggregate economy? And a lot of the work in this area <clears throat> Is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is very much applicable to whatever kind of model you've been thinking of, whether you think of an aggregate demand or an aggregate supply model. A lot of these amplification and transmission mechanisms. So a lot of modern economics, I think, tell, tells us important things. These are important areas of modern economics, even if you think that the real shock driving it is not the right shock. Now, uh, just a bit of context, a bit of background. I want to talk about one of these amplification and transmission uh, mechanisms, sort of a new one which has been talked about. 
And to do that, I just wanted to set the stage just a tiny bit. You know, in conventional RBC models, as well as in New Keynesian models, they're one-sector models. So you, so you say the economy's output, that's Y. This is equal to some technology factor A times some function of capital and labor. Okay. Well, why one sector? Why just one? This doesn't seem, doesn't seem realistic. But the argument has been that we're interested in macro shocks, aggregate shock. Clearly, something is affecting the entire economy. And the argument is that this requires an aggregate shock. That is, if you think about a whole, the economy as being a whole bunch of sectors, then the argument traditionally was that shocks to the sectors, they'll cancel out. You get one positive shock here, but you get a negative shock here, and law of large numbers. This means that overall, these sectoral shocks are going to cancel out. So if you think you need an aggregate shock to drive the aggregate economy, you may as well use a one-sector one model of the economy, because the sectors themselves, the shocks in those sectors, uh, net out in the long run, or in the, when you take them over many sectors. Now, I think this is not correct. And this is where some of this new research comes in. Uh, I'm just going to give two responses to this criticism. One is, it turns out, large firms are much larger than you think they are. So this is work from uh, Xavier Gabay. And he points out that the top 50 firms, this is for the United States, their sales as a fraction of GDP, that's like 25%. So 50 firms, you've got 25% of GDP in terms of sales. So when you have so many large firms, these sectoral shocks, even perhaps firm shocks, can start to make a difference for the aggregate economy. If you take the top 100 firms, we're talking 30, 35% of sales. So that's one counter that these sectoral shocks can matter. Another one, this is from uh, Darren Asimoglu and co-authors, is to start thinking about the economy as a network. Now, it's quite right if you take the, uh, the first panel, panel A here, if each sector just sells to itself, then sectoral shocks cancel. It also turns out to be true in panel B that if each sector sells an equal amount to every other sector, then sectoral shocks cancel. If, however, some sectors sell to many sectors, they don't cancel. And in fact, when you look at the US economy, uh, you can sort of see there's at least three or four sectors here which sell to many, many other sectors. Manufacturing sells to many other sectors. The financial sector sells to many other sectors. So you get something wrong in the financial system that will spread out throughout an entire economy, throughout the entire network. OK, so do I think that these are, you know, this is the answer, that we've got it? No, not necessarily. But I want to make just a few conclusions. First, economics is a growing, vibrant discipline with a multitude of approaches. You know, Paul Krugman has said that, you know, conventional, that, that, that the, a huge amount of research which has been done in the last 30 years has been a dark ages. And I think that's totally wrong and totally unfair. There are many, many very smart, very dedicated, very intelligent people, macroeconomists, who are working on these problems, who take these problems seriously, who are not 
blindfolded to understand all of these issues and to accuse them of simply being dark age economists, I think, is, is a, does a disservice to the economics profession. The economy is complex. There are a lot more questions than there are answers. That's unfortunate, but that is going to be true. Public choice is important, and understanding the limits of politics can help us to choose optimal policies. Those policies will be different when we recognize the constraints of politics. And finally, I'd like to say, buy Tim's book. Read Tim's book. It's an excellent book. Thank you very much. I think before we, we open it up, it might be fair to, to give Tim a chance to defend himself. I think there were at least three points that were raised that were interesting. One is public choice. The other one is nominal stickiness. And the third one is real business cycle theory. Sure. So defend myself against the scurrilous notion that everyone should buy the book. Um, <laughs> so, uh, which, I, which I do agree with. Thank you, Alex. Um, actually, I thought a lot of Alex's uh, comments were fair. I do think public choice... Uh, is important. I wrote about it a fair bit in my book, Logic of Life, um, which is also a great book you should buy. <laughs> I, I just didn't want to repeat myself uh, too much, but I, I totally agree. It's very important. On the subject of, of using the Q&A format, actually, I, I hope that that enabled me to explore some of the complexity. Inevitably, you don't want to, in answer to every question, go... Nobody knows. It's very complicated. There's a multiplicity of views. Even though the truth is nobody knows, it is very complicated, and there is a multiplicity of views. Every now and then, you've just got to come off the fence and say, well, I personally, if I had to make a bet, this is what I think. So I do occasionally come off the fence. But I, one of the things I enjoyed about the Q&A is it gives the reader a voice and imagines the reader go, thinking, seeing some piece of macro and going, that doesn't make any sense. That's completely insane and actually able to say, I, I don't buy that, and then I can acknowledge that, disagree with that, whatever. But let me, let me talk a little bit about um, real business cycles and the prisoner of war camp. Um, it, it, there's one, one piece of context Alex didn't give, which is that I contrast the prisoner of war camp with another uh, toy recession, which is the babysitting co-op recession, which has become quite famous. Paul Krugman has used it a lot in his books, uh, took place in the late 1970s, about two miles that way. Um, and it's a, it's a recession that happened because of extreme price stickiness. Uh, basically, people were exchanging little units of currency in exchange for babysitting time, and they didn't have enough of this currency, so nobody wanted to go out and, and enjoy themselves. Everybody wanted to stay in and babysit for somebody else until they had a bit more currency. And because everybody wanted to stay in and babysit and nobody wanted to go out, there was a depression, and the depression was effectively permanent because the price stickiness was effectively permanent. Um, because no one, would, no one would renegotiate on the value of this currency. And the, the, the depression was eventually temporarily solved by quantitative easing, and then uh, they overdid it, and they had hyperinflation. What do you know? Um, now, is that a fair model of how a real economy works? No, I don't think it is. And people sometimes criticize Paul for using it as an example. And I think it's, the criticism's a little fair. He's just trying to give you a sense of some of the mechanisms that might be at work, while acknowledging clearly a real economy is more complicated. 
what I wanted to do was to stand up for real business cycle theory and give real business cycle theory a, another toy model that, again, um, doesn't fully represent the complexity of the world, uh, is not a great description of a, of a real economy, but nevertheless is a system where you can see everything working, you can figure out how all the pieces put together, uh, and that was the prisoner of war camp recession. And by the way, neither of these are hypothetical examples. They're the most real recessions that happened and have been well documented. The prisoner of war camp recession, what's interesting about it is um, the prisoner of war camp economy worked extremely well. Uh, it, the prisoners would exchange goods. There was some limited degree of, of production. There was a lot of trade because some people smoked, some people didn't. The French wanted coffee, the, the English wanted tea. What a surprise. And um, the, so the economy worked really well. There was no price stickiness. The senior British officer in the camp actually tried to fix prices. He said, this is, this is crazy. The prices keep moving. That can't be allowed. And he tried to sort of, there's a just price and, and, it's, and tried to legislate, but prices kept moving, uh, refusing to reflect any ethical theory and um, regrettably sticking to the forces of supply and demand. Um, but nevertheless, everybody in that prison camp came close to starving to death because in the end, aggregate supply was a problem. There just wasn't enough stuff coming in as the war progressed. Now, is that a, is that a fair reflection of real business cycle theory? I think it's about as fair as the babysitting co-op is a reflection of Keynesian theory. I, well, it's not that fair, but it gives you a sense of what's going on. And in the book, I talk about more convincing examples of shocks, in terms of trade shocks and uh, oil shocks and shocks in the financial sector. You may have noticed one or two of them in the last few years. Um, so uh, I'm sorry Alex felt that I, I wasn't giving real business cycle theory a fair crack of the whip. I, I was trying to, and maybe I failed. Um, and just on the point of me being a middle-of-the-road Keynesian, well, actually, I do say in the book that government stimulus, fiscal stimulus, is almost always inappropriate as a response to a recession. It's almost always going to be unnecessary. It's going to be too late. Uh, and I believe Keynes also agreed with this, so maybe that does make me a Keynesian. Um, and I said that it, we, we are absolutely right to be suspicious of people who propose ramping up government spending to boost aggregate demand um, because they're going to waste money and it's all... Uh, you know, it's just not, not a great idea. I do say, however, that I do happen to think that in the most recent recession, aggregate demand was an important part of the story and the recession was very deep and there was an appropriate role for stimulus spending. I also think that that's about the first time that's been true for 40 years, possibly the first time that's been true for 80 years. So I don't think that makes me very Keynesian, but maybe it makes me too Keynesian for Alex's tastes and I will plead uh, guilty as charged. Um, but thank you, Alex, for your very thoughtful comments. I think it's fast. Oh, one more thing. Um, stickiness. Yes. All I would say is, as you described with supply shocks, sometimes, uh, and I, I totally agree, sometimes a small supply shock can propagate in a very interesting way and have a big overall effect. Similarly with price stickiness, sometimes a little bit of price stickiness can also propagate. Uh, we don't really understand this very well. I think the intuitions of trying to plot networks and look at individual firms, I think that's a, that's a very good approach. I would just say, I feel both with these small um, aggregate, uh, aggregate supply shocks and with price stickiness, they're frictions, right? They're little things, they're small, they complicate the models. It's always a bit annoying to have to deal with friction and physicists prefer to avoid it. But if you walk outside in the street and you try and walk without any friction, you will find it turns out to be important. And I know I, I, we can see Alex agrees with me when it comes to 
modeling supply shocks. I think the same is true of, of price stickiness as well. I think we can, we, can, we, can, we can open it up for questions. So please raise your hands, um, wait for the microphone, and when asking a question, introduce yourselves. Um, there's a gentleman in the third row. Uh, there seem to be a growing number of economists that, that think that the reason why economists are not very good at predicting things is that uh, they're reusing the wrong model, that they are thinking in sort of 18th century terms of the economy as a machine, as your good friend Mr. Phillips uh, did. Um, there, there's a growing number that think that we need to go back to classical and even scholastic uh, economics that has a more complete understanding of human nature and therefore be reflected in the economy Philip Blonde in your country has been a proponent of this. We have John Mueller and other people here. What do you think of that school of thought being introduced to the economic modeling that's being done now? I'm a pluralist. As I, as I point out in the final chapter, I think that a lot of very interesting approaches that need to be uh, reflected in us in our understanding of the economy, because ultimately the economy is a human system and humans are individually hugely complicated. And then when you you get them together, then they're even more complicated. So approaches from psychology, approaches from complexity theory, uh, approaches from engineering, understanding uh, banking, safety engineering, I think is important. Not the kind of hydraulic <coughs> engineering I described Bill Phillips doing, but thinking about whistleblowers. I mean, just interfering in complex systems. So I, I, I'm, I'm definitely a pluralist and I, and I agree with Alex. It's actually a very, very exciting time to be an economist because there's so much, we've got so much data coming in, so many different promising approaches, so many interesting problems. What, what I would say though is that I don't think that's the reason why we can't forecast. I think the reason we can't forecast is because forecasting is at the present level of human understanding just impossible in all sorts of fields. There's a wonderful study by the psychologist Philip Tetlock, not just of economists, but of political scientists, historians, sociologists, etc., demonstrating a total failure to forecast because the world is a complicated place. There's a lovely little story about John Maynard Keynes, obviously a great economist. He also had a man with a lot of insight and knowledge at a time when insider trading was legal, and also a man with a fantastic grasp of British economic statistics because he was, he was building them at the time. And he was responsible for currency policy for the British government during the First World War. So I mean, how, could you, how could you be more plugged in? He then went and adopted a, uh, a trading strategy based on forecasting the business cycle, totally failed for nearly 10 years, underperformed the market, and finally switched to sort of Warren Buffett-style investment, and that turned out to be um, very successful for him. So if, if even a guy that well plugged in, that in touch with the statistics, um, that much insight. He got a phone call telling him the Bank of England was about to change its base rate. He still couldn't make money. Uh, you know, forecasting is just really hard, and I don't think that should be the benchmark of whether we understand a system or not. Let me just underline a few of the things which uh, Tim said, which I agree with. Um, first, like Tim, I'm a pluralist. I do think that one thing, one area in which economists really did go wrong is that, especially in macroeconomics, there did come to be a feeling that there's only one way to do it you know, micro foundations, rational expectations, and so forth. Even if you think that those are good things, the idea that this is the only way, the only appropriate way to model the economy, the only thing you can get published, the only thing you can get in the journals, that I think was, was really uh, uh, terrible. Um, so I agree entirely on that. On which way to go, 
Yeah, I think that's much less uh, clear. You know, there's a lot of talk about behavioral economics and psychology uh, versus the rational man actor of standard econ. Um, uh, maybe, that'll, maybe that will turn out um, uh, to be uh, fruitful. I would say that I think just complexity itself, modeling, as I was suggesting just a little bit, a, the network structure of the economy, the way that sectors and firms are connected, just that alone, even without adding in behavioral complications, I think will generate considerable amount of complexity. So this is not necessary. So you don't necessarily need behavioral approaches in order to have a quite different looking uh, economics. And then on forecasts, again, I agree with Tim. Just, you just got to bear in mind that when you are forecasting in economics, you're forecasting the behavior of people who themselves are forecasting. And you're trying to forecast people whose forecasts are probably at least as good, if not better, than your own. And those people are trying to forecast knowing that the policymakers themselves are forecasting. So even if everybody was good at forecasting, once you introduce the fact that they're trying to forecast other people who are trying to forecast, well, then it's, it's you know, all bets are off. Then you're not going to get a system which is easily forecastable. And that's sort of the essence of a kind of a rational expectations approach. But even if you don't go with rational expectations, just understanding the self-referential aspect of forecast in an economy can tell you it's never going to be very successful. Um, hi, my name is Theodore Gebhardt. I'm a retired economist and attorney. Um, you mentioned Lionel Robbins, who was somewhat of a friend of the Austrians, um, and we're in the Cato Institute. I'm wondering, as part of your pluralism, um, in the book, do you discuss Austrian business cycle theory? And if so, um, in a sentence or two, what do you think about it and what do you say about it? Uh uh, as a pluralist, to my shame, I do not discuss Austrian business cycle theory. I do talk about Hayek a great deal in an earlier book called Adapt, which is about trial and error processes in economies and why they're important and what stands in their way. Uh, and Hayek is something of a hero in there. Um, so uh, I apologize. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll let Alex give a good account of Austrian real business cycle, uh, of Austrian business cycle theory, because he's the expert on this. Um, but if you want to find out, you know, why, where I think Hayek uh, was particularly exciting, then my earlier book, Adapt, is the one to read. Yeah, I, it's interesting. There are a lot of people who might call uh, foul weather Austrians, that uh, suddenly when the economy looks bad, they turn into Austrians. Uh, so Paul Krugman is famous for, you know, having a critique of Austrian economics during the good times. But during the bad times, uh, suddenly there's a lot of things he says which sound an awful lot like uh, Austrian economics, like the financial system uh, being over-expansionary. You know, in the standard Austrian view, it's the, you have a very simple mechanism. Uh, it's the government, uh, the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates, and that's the expansionary, expansionary aspect which then later on, this expansion proves to be uh, uh, infeasible in the real sector. It proves to be infeasible. Now, there's a lot of other ways you could tell a very similar story, such as the financial system itself 
not necessarily because the government is pushing the money supply, but through uh, new technologies, through new innovations, through CDOs and uh, new financial innovations, you know, starts to put out a lot more credit. You know, on the basis of the same money supply, you get a vast expansion in credit and you get all these house building and so forth. And that can later then turn out to be uh, infeasible. Uh, the, you know, the, the public doesn't really want all those houses or, you know, you get these collapses and things like that. So uh, Larry Summers has talked about this. Uh, Paul has talked about this. Uh, and it's not formalized anywhere. But uh, I do think that connecting the financial system um, uh, with an, an Austrian approach, I think there's something there. And it is amazing how whenever you have a recession like this, people return to these ideas. Um, so the jury is still out, but uh, I, I definitely think that there's something more to be said there. My name is Terrence Byrne. I'm unaffiliated currently. My question is about income inequality. We're hearing a great deal about it nowadays, not the least because President Obama and Pope Francis have expressed great concern about it, and both leave us with the idea that unguided free enterprise economic development is worsening the problem. Could you comment on current attention to income inequality, both of you, please? I'm not, I'm not surprised that a great deal of attention is being paid to it because it, it, it is clearly quite sharply on the increase in, particularly in Anglophone economies and uh, all the way down the income spectrum, but particularly at the top, there's a concentration of income among very high earners. Um, now, what concerns me, I, I don't think it's terribly helpful to just say, oh, it's the free market. Ah. Um, what concerns me is that um, social mobility is low, and as much as we can measure it, it's hard to measure, is low in Anglophone countries. And I would expect the opposite, because these are economies that are more uh, pro-market, they're more pro-liberty, uh, obviously, we might hope that they would be even more pro-liberty than they are, but they, you would think that that's the place where there's quality of opportunity and people can rise to the top and say, okay, there may be extreme income inequality, but just wait a generation and things will change. That seems to be just less true in America uh, than it is almost anywhere else. And it's, uh, it's not really true in Canada. It's not really true in my own country, the UK. It's much more true in places such as Sweden and Denmark and so on. And, that, and that's a puzzle. I think it's that that concerns me. Not the income inequality by itself, but the lack of social mobility. Because that suggests that there is, there is really a problem with this idea that I'm sure everybody in this room espouses of equality of opportunity. And what to do about that, I don't know. I don't see uh, punitively redistributive taxation as being a tremendously productive way of, do, of dealing with it. I don't see inheritance taxes as being uh, particularly helpful. In any case, it's not really about inheritance. There's something else being passed down between the generations. But what I will observe is that um, the Scandinavian countries have, by most measures, absolutely first-class primary and secondary education. And not only is the average level very high, 
by measures that I trust, but the dispersion of the quality of schools is low. So it doesn't matter what school your child goes to, what district your, your, your child is educated in, they're going to get a good uh, education. I don't think we believe that that is true of this city. I don't believe it's true uh, in many places in America. I don't believe it's true in my own country, the UK. And maybe that is a place where we should be looking to, to tackle this issue at the roots. So I agree with much of what uh, Tim said, but instead of just agreeing, let me say, put things a little bit differently. Um, you know, we always talk about income inequality. The way that I would start talking about it is earnings inequality. Why is it that some people are able to earn much more than other people? And I think uh, a lot of this has to do with changes in technology. So um, I don't think this, I, I think to the extent that uh, the U.S. is different from other places in the world, I think that's just because we're on the leading edge. I think other places in the world will follow along and indeed have been following along. So what do I mean by technology? I, the story I think about here is J.K. Rowling. So she is the first author in the history of the world to earn a billion dollars from her writing. Now, why is this? Is this because, you know, J.K. Rowling was so much a better author than Tolkien was or than Shakespeare was? No, I don't think so. And it's not to cast any aspersions on J.K. Rowling. I think she's a very good author. But is she so much better? No. I think the reason is, is because she is able to leverage using technology, her writings, much more than, say, Shakespeare was. Shakespeare, the most he could earn, you know, in a night, you know, 500 people might see one of his plays. Rowling has access to basically every, every reader in the entire world, not just in English. J.K. Rowling is huge in China. J.K. Rowling is huge in India. J.K. Rowling has access to the movies, to the toys, to the tie-ins with McDonald's and so forth. So... When you combine this with the fact that we have a winner-take-all market in the sense that we're not going to read every good book. There's only a limited number of times to read books, and we all kind of like to read what everybody else is reading. So some people, partly due to skill and partly due to luck, are going to be at that cutting edge. They're going to be the ones chosen. Because of leverage, they're going to have massive uh, earnings. So I think this technological factor, winner-take-all markets plus the technology factor of, of leverage, of being able to communicate, of having a much larger market, globalization, a much larger market than has ever been possible. So I think this is what explains a lot of earnings inequality, especially at the 1%, especially at the very top. I don't see those trends going away at all. In fact, if anything, I see them accelerating. Uh, it's unclear what we can or should do uh, about that. But I would start with the idea not of income inequality, but with earnings inequality, and ask, why is it that so many, that so many, that so many people are now able to earn so much more than other people? That's just the, my approach to that question. I'm afraid we only have space for one final question. Um, please. <laughs> Hi, uh, Michael Enders. Um, I wanted to get your opinions on the idea that income inequality or social lack of social mobility may be a function more of disadvantaged groups being taught that they are victims, uh, not responsible for their lot in life. Uh, 
as opposed to pure economic uh, factors. That's something that I would be interested to see uh, tested. And I, and I know that there, there is interesting work done by the psychologist Carol Dweck uh, on uh, the effect of different kinds of praise and different kinds of feedback on childhood achievement. Um, I, I mean, I don't have any strong view on it, and I don't, I'm not aware of any good evidence on it. But I, I think as a general principle, something Alex said really um, close to the beginning of his talk, that a lot of our problems are, are actually microeconomic problems, not macroeconomic problems. A lot of our problems are actually taking place uh, at a scale where we can understand and then scale up. Uh, and that's true in, say, the Unemployment Benefit Office. I discuss uh, an example in the book of UK unemployment benefit. The traditional system is money is paid to people who are unemployed, but um, maybe they're welfare scroungers. So they're quizzed to make sure that they're absolutely looking for work and they're not just scrounging. Well, that was the old approach. And then, so the new approach was uh, maybe instead of quizzing them to make, to make sure they applied for work last week, we should give them advice to help them apply for work next week. And they just ran a randomized trial. Bottom floor, top floor of a two-story uh, unemployment benefit office. Applicants were randomly assigned to the different floors. The people on the top floor were using the new method, the forward-looking method. The people on the bottom floor were using the old method, the backward-looking method. Turns out the new method was dramatically more effective at getting people off welfare and into jobs. And, of course, once you have that, that randomized trial, which is a, a, an excellent standard of evidence, you can roll it out and every unemployment benefit office in the country can use that. We need to be doing that more in our schools. We're not very interested in doing that in our schools. I would really like to understand what it is that is going on in these Scandinavian schools that seems to make them so good, uh, and really going out there, testing it, and trying to bring it back and seeing what works in an American context, what works in a British context, and what doesn't. Uh, sometimes problems that seem to be very diffuse and very large indeed actually will submit to micro-scale evidence-based policy, which we need to use. Okay, well, this was fun, but I'm afraid we have to draw this to a close. So feel free to, to join us upstairs for, for a light lunch. And uh, please join me in thanking Tim Harford and Alex Sabrak for, for their talks.